Hola, hola Charlito. Charlito. Hola Charlie. Hey Charlie. Okay, Charlie. Is your name Charles? It's Charlie, not Charles. Hello, okay, mi gente. Thank you for joining me on today's episode titled The Enemy from Within. Now, this is an important episode because we get to talk a bit about toxic masculinity and how it is the enemy within a lot of us, stopping us from achieving the progress that our communities deserve. It affects our communities, especially communities of color. So let's talk about it. Male violence is a real issue. And so now we want to defund the police, right? Stop this form of institutional racism from exerting physical violence on communities of color. And we want to reallocate those funds to build social programs such as job training, better education, and peacekeeping initiatives. We want this nation to reimagine criminal justice in a way that it doesn't destroy black and brown communities. Yet we ain't hip to the politics. The New York Times recently reported that there have been 166 murders in New York City this year. And that's only through June 21st. That's 134 more murders than the same period last year. Now, we should all know that there is a well-funded campaign running full speed ahead with the sole purpose of highlighting that we are doing everything possible to promote the opposite with the recent rise in shootings. And I say this with complete acknowledgement of who I am, what my privilege is, that I'm actually privileged to be hip to the politics, that I'm a man, a college-educated man, with no physical disabilities, and raised in a relatively stable environment. I do not want to appear as judgmental. But let's not get it twisted. The problem of male violence, especially in communities of color, is deeply rooted. I have my own experiences with male violence, as some of you may have as well. As a child, I was described as observant and shy. I was also well-loved. Hugs were a daily practice at home from both my mother and my father from as far as back as I can recall. However, I realized that my father at an early age started to play fight with me and not my sister. I didn't think much of it, just thought that he was simply trying to make me tougher. My older half-brother, who had just arrived from the Dominican Republic, did the same, but he would actually take it a step further. This dude's play fight consisted of twisting my arm around my back while he leaned in with his grown man body. I remember feeling the tendons strain on my shoulder as my child muscles separated from the bone. With tears leaving my eyes, I felt I was going to die each time. But I didn't, 
And each time I wrestled with another child, I felt more prepared, more violent. I felt more like a boy. One time when I was five years old, I remember my usually loving father getting into a spat with a young kid on the street. The kid was African-American, and I later learned his name to be Kyle. Kyle was on a bike and almost ran into my father as he was walking me into the building. Now, Kyle was an older child, probably like 9 or 10 years old. But I specifically recall my father speaking to this kid as if he was a grown man. His tone was aggressive and his language offensive and threatening. And I was surprised by this because he went from zero to 100 real quick. And I wondered to myself, why wasn't Kyle spoken to like a child? Was it because Kyle was African-American, a few shades darker than my father? Or was it because that's how you spoke to boys? The young boys are supposed to be addressed as men and that it was cool to threaten them with physical violence. Well, I ended up becoming good friends with Kyle. And a few decades later, I revisited that experience with him. And I remember he only shared a few words about it. He played it off as if he didn't remember, but I took it as him being conservative with his words out of respect for the dead since my father was no longer living. But I still remember that day when Kyle was denied the full humanity of being a boy. That day, his emotional life was threatened by a man I called Bobby. And this was the beginning of my understanding of what it meant to be a boy. And that understanding was only reinforced as I entered school age. You see, in preschool, I was enthusiastic about school. But something happened when I got to the fourth grade or so. I remember feeling that my attention span wasn't the same, that I wasn't quite grasping or interested in the material presented by the teacher. I found less glory in my academic achievement and found more of a desire to assert myself as a person. Interestingly, I found data that reflect that scores among boys of color tend not to improve after the fourth grade while the national average does. The data attributed this to a change in teaching style that went from holistic to method around that age. And that holistic style works better for children with stressful influences and pressures outside of the classroom, which I would imagine is the case for many boys of color. However, what I did not know was that another contributor of this decline was due to cultural differences between the student and the teacher, which was crucial for me because I felt none of my teachers spoke my language or understood the culture I was a part of. Some, not all, condemned the way that I spoke without understanding me as a student, as a person, which in turn affected the way I felt about myself. As someone who attended parochial school, I was usually forced into learning their way as opposed to finding my way. I remember ta quotes 
uh, said in his uh, really good book, Between the World and Me, uh, that, and I quote, I was a curious boy, but the schools were not concerned with curiosity. They were concerned with compliance. I loved a few of my teachers, but I cannot say that I truly believed any of them. This is important because for kids, especially boys, peer pressures increases with age while parents' attention to their children decreases with age. I recall when things started to get a bit violent. Boys started to act more hostile in class. The older kids would come around and try to pick on us. So my father passed away on the last day of first grade and my brother had already moved to Miami to start his own family. So I turned to a crew of cats on the block for some form of guidance or feedback. Most of us were fatherless children. Which brings me to think about what President Obama noted about kids without fathers. And, and I quote, he said that kids without fathers are five times more likely to commit crime and live in poverty, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. I remember I was six years old. One year after my father passed away, I took my bike and with an older friend, and without notice, I separated from him. As I was riding the bike, a kid who appeared to be 10 or so blocked my path and asked me for a ride. I told him no, and he tried to get me off the bike as we struggled. He pushed me and I almost fell to the ground. He jumped on the bike and quickly rode away. I got up, brushed myself off, and I walked back to where my friend was in shock. As my boy saw me walking back, bikeless, he pressed me about what happened. I explained and I remember he telling me very clearly that I had to fight for my bike as if my life depended on it. And I told him, even if he had a knife, I asked. He responded, even if he has a knife. At this moment, I realized that this was less about the bike and more about me holding myself down as a man, even though I was seven. Thankfully, the powers that be, which consisted of some of my older African-American and Dominican friends from the block, were able to retrieve my bike, but the message was very clear. I needed to learn how to hold my own. I know now that a boy can be raised in all of his humanity. He could be sensitive, he could be considerate, but in the 80s on my block, that boy was picked on by other children in the neighborhood, especially if he didn't show that he can fight for himself. And it is a sensitive kid who is most affected by these traumatic events 
that actually become worse than the guys who picked on him because he is now hurt, hyper aware of the power dynamics that leads children to target you as weak, finding himself overcompensating to prove that he is tough any chance he gets. So now this same child moves in a way that he ensures that he never feels weak again. This child, this victim, unknowingly becomes the bully. This is how little dudes become lion-hearted. There is an innocence that is lost along the way, and again, that only gets reinforced as the young bull moves into his teenage years. Shit, as a kid, I saw a family that contributed to their sons being violent. Many of my friends' mothers, who at times would speak out against this culture of violence, were reluctant to even challenge their sons' tendency towards violence. I overheard several mothers tell their sons that if someone smacks you, you smack them back. Because they were afraid that their child would be taken advantage of. My own loving mother, in wanting to protect my heart from a young girl in the fifth grade, teased me for displaying intense feelings over the phone with this young female classmate. I recall her stare and her raised eyebrow as she whispered, No te aficies, que las mujeres no le gustan cuando los hombres se afician. She pretty much said, don't suffocate over her. That women do not like it when men fall all over them like that. And some of my boys also felt the pressures of living in a single-parent household early on. That their overwhelmed mothers told them that they were the man of the house. And because of that, they were treated as such. Many of them angry and confused whenever the mother had a boyfriend over these same boys barely had to cook or clean because it wasn't expected from them. But a few years into their childhood, they were expected to become providers, even though they were still in the midst of their childhood. Many of us felt that unlike privileged-ass kids that you see on TV, we simply couldn't exist. No fuimos hijo de mami y papi. Where we could just enjoy our childhoods and insulate ourselves from the financial pressures of the household. These same boys feel the need to make money just to be valued in their homes and later in their relationships. Many of those same friends started hustling just to feel good about themselves, just to get a sense of what it was to be a man, a provider of sorts. They were never taught to clean tubs, make dinners, or even boil a hot dog. But their sisters were trained to do so. These boys were simply loved by their mothers, but their sisters were raised by their mothers to become mothers. You know, sometimes I question whether single mothers look to their own sons to replace that husband that didn't stay. And that's a different game, right? Because then the son 
masters early on how to manipulate not only their mothers, but to go on and manipulate their girlfriends and their wives. Why? Because they never learned or they were never given the same responsibilities as their sisters. How many young males right now are chilling on their mother's sofa wearing some expensive-ass Jordans with no real sense of responsibility of what goes on inside the home? There's multiple people that are complicit to that. Now, those that had fathers were fortunate, but some of those that had fathers had fathers who teased them into becoming men. Fathers who barely said, I love you. And when they would complain to their moms about their dad's heavy-handedness, she would gaslight them and tell them that they should be appreciative to have him in their life and to have him provide a roof over their heads. They were taught to overlook his toxic maleness. At worst, some of these young men were forced to compete with their fathers under the same roof, which then crippled any chance of a positive connection to any real adult man. This alone makes it far more likely for a young male to invest in a hyper-masculine patriarchal ideal. I really do believe that we live in a society that already tells young black men that they aren't enough. So now you add fathers to the equation and fathers that may be treated like children by their employers. Then they come home to practice that same assertiveness on their wives and children. So if these boys, if these young men couldn't turn to their own fathers to express their sources of anger, insecurities, and shame, they tend to turn to their peers. But let's say even if this young male is raised in a healthy household, Outside influence is way too much to ignore. Studies say that outside influence makes up about 62% of the overall influence a child receives in his or her teenage years. But let's hit the rewind button for a quick second. Let's not forget that as youngins, we had cartoons that showed white boys chasing characters of color already criminalizing images that resembled us. As we become older, we continue to see male violence and aggressiveness in the sports that we played, in the music that we listened to. Shit, I remember hearing some of the most destructive hip-hop lyrics in the early 90s. I specifically recall this Mob Deep album and a killer intro that they had to that Godfather Part Three track. The hip-hop duo starts off by identifying a young man that they have a problem with standing by a basketball court outside the window. Havoc, one of the members of the group, tells his friend to slowly open up the window so that he can start shooting at this person. You hear his friends in the background acting as motivational coaches. 
And the super quality sound production makes the listener feel like they were right there with Havoc. Pointing his gun out the window. You also hear the other member of the group and legendary lyricist prodigy tells Havoc seconds before he pulls the trigger and tries to grab the gun and tells Havoc, let me do it. Let me do it. As in, you ain't man enough to shoot this guy, son. Let me do it. Next thing you know, you hear about at least 28 shots. It was like, pat, 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 pat. And me, the listener, experiences the rush of committing such a violent act as if I'm there with jaw clenched, heart racing, pounding in my chest, wishing for this other man's demise. At the time, I felt more like a man when I would hear that track. I felt like a soldier ready to fight some crazy ass war. I used to listen to the track almost always when I worked out. How crazy is that? I was also from Harlem, and at the time, it was known as money-making Harlem. And that was only because it glorified drug culture. You see, that as a, as a teenager, we learned more about the vehicles that these drug dealers drove and less about the effects of their drug dealing on the community. And they would get love. They would get love from their friends, from their wives, even their mothers. To many of us, shit, they were the American dream. The block was lit because of them, because of the resources they provided. They would later also help us get into clubs where we couldn't afford bottle service. I've always questioned whether these club owners knew what they were doing and what precedent they were setting for young males. The message was clear. We don't need you in here unless you can afford to pay $300 for a bottle. Meanwhile, our sisters were in there, our girlfriends were in there. The TV also inundated us with endless amounts of war movies that also pushed this good versus evil narrative, which usually meant white versus other. Also, one of my favorite cop shows overly and inaccurately represented men of color as criminals and again adorned this good versus evil narrative. Peer pressure was so intense that many of us learned as teenagers to become autonomous by becoming antisocial. We didn't know how to assert autonomy without exhibiting antisocial behavior. The streets were psychological warfare and you learned to trust no one because emotionally you were still an adolescent. Bell Hooks said, and I quote, it is in the isolation that teenage boys lose the sense of value and worth. I agree. And this opens the door for unchecked mental health and violence. Let me take you on a journey of memory lane where I share with you some of the violent trauma that I experienced as a young male until adult life. Starting when I was young, my loving grandmother once told me that her father, who was an activist in the Dominican Republic, was shot to death by soldiers 
under the instruction of the Dominican dictator at the time, Rafael Trujillo. She romanticizes death, though he was this recipient of violence. I didn't know my great-grandfather, so I thought about it without exploring much of the effects of his death on me. But my neighborhood brought me a little closer to death. And my overwhelmed mother could not compete with the violent culture I was exposed to. Let's go all the way to preschool. I remember witnessing students from other schools wait around the school just to be able to snatch hats and coats from the other students in my school. I remember when I was a fourth grader, or maybe a fifth grader, I was afraid to go out in fear that one of these kids would attack or steal something from me. But the feeling of being afraid was worse than actually going out there and risking me being attacked. So I would intentionally go out despite the tension with these other students. And one day, a much larger kid effortlessly snatched my favorite sky blue North Carolina cap off my head. It was like he shot a spider web from his palm to grab it. As soon as I processed the shock, which took me about two seconds, I ran up towards this boy, and as he curled up his fist, I was scared, but prepared to get fucked up, thinking to myself that I would be lucky if I at least get one hit. But before it got physical and this older kid destroyed me, um, this other kid from the neighborhood stepped in, grabbed a hat from this other guy and gave it back to me. The kid from my neighborhood, which I later learned to be Carlos Jose, told this dude that he knew me. Apparently, he also went to that nearby public school. I again started understanding the importance of alliance. The problem was that sometimes these alliances turn violent. Broadway was known for coming together to beat down thieves to a pulp. And though the police were present, they would sometimes allow this to happen. I learned this to be community justice early on. We started to protect each other from outside violence, but then in the early 90s, we started to notice that violence started to become deadly. I remember when I was 12 or so, a dead body was found in the trash dumpster near the designated spot on the block where I played crate ball. I remember a friend waving a gun at another friend for disrespecting him in that spot few years before, I remembered that loud ringing in my eardrums when this same dude let off shots in broad daylight. I remember attending my friend's brother's funeral. Her brother was shot to death by shooters on a roof, and it was a case of mistaken identity, and I remember that he was only 13. I can't also erase the memory of the agony I saw on her mom's face that day. Shit, I remember when I was 14 having a fist fight with my best friend 
all because I didn't appreciate the bass in his voice. I remember my boy, my barber, Melvin, scheduling me for the Saturday after he planned to return from his Dominican Republic trip. To arrive that Saturday at the barbershop to learn that he was stabbed to death over a woman in Santo Domingo. I remember getting into fights with other kids on the block because I wanted to show cats I could fight. I remember winning fights and losing fights and the lack of reconciliation afterwards. I remember playing it cool until things died down. I remember my step pops telling me he looked for some kid I had an issue with in his van with a few friends. I remember not asking him why. I remember my boy Raul getting killed in the Bronx at the age of 16 for having a dispute with some kid. I remember that at his funeral, despite the makeup, I could still see the bullet hole imprint on his forehead. I remember one day hanging on the corner and in one second having to defend a few friends from an outside attack. I remember being scared but still enjoying the rush, thanking God that no one was gravely hurt. I remember inviting this girl over to my neighborhood. She had drove all the way from Westchester and it was a winter day, I remember. As we walked, I thought it was a brilliant idea to walk into a private building just so that we can warm up and, you know, make out. I remember we were by the third floor staircase sharing kisses when a crazy ass older man without a shirt ran out of an apartment and started screaming at me. It took me a few seconds to focus less on his words and more on the gun he was pointing. I remember he accused me of stealing something from his apartment. I remember he appeared very high. I can't recall how I got out of it, but I do recall not seeing Miss Westchester ever again. I remember my boy Leo getting shot in the arm and next day joking about it at the hospital. I remember hearing the terrible news of my friend Mario being killed by his girlfriend over a dispute that they had in a restaurant. He was stabbed in a car with a knife from the restaurant. He was attempting to drive off. I remember he was just completing his second year in college. I remember seeing two friends on Broadway argue over a Domino's game and moments later, one of them being transported on an ambulance for stab wounds to the rib cage. Man, I remember getting sucker punched in high school. And I remember telling myself after that to always swing first. I remember that in my next fight, I did just that. I remember the call from my best friend when he told me his face was sliced over a situation at a movie theater. I remember holding another friend's gun with eyes wide open as he tried to teach me how to shoot. I remember that same friend describing to me how it feels to stab someone. He said, 
If you listen closely, you could hear the air leaving the body. I remember hearing a young lady I dated at 16 was found shot to death by her abusive boyfriend four years later. I remember feeling heartbroken when I heard the news about Kyle. The same Kyle who had an issue with my pops when we were children and then tried to play it off and minimize it when I brought it up to him out of respect. The same Kyle who was the best shit talker on the basketball court. The same Kyle that put himself through college and became a Phi Beta Sigma fraternity member. The Kyle who helped me and my best friend start a community block association and throw block festivals for the community. That same Kyle was murdered with a shot to the head by a kid on a bike as he was walking on a Harlem public street. The reasons are unknown, but Kyle didn't deserve to leave the earth this way. In short, I understand how young boys can become paranoid and violent. And because you destroy them young, the chances are slim that they become healthy adult men. The schools do not take holistic approaches. This one-size-fits-all education makes it hard to prevent these young boys who were once enthusiastic in preschool from sitting in the back of their high school classrooms and eventually dropping out. And in doing so, choosing to engage with their violent world full-time. When are we going to realize that there is also no emotional outlet for the grief of the disappointed teenage boy. Which is why many turn to drugs or alcohol to numb themselves. As someone who grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, I know the drug era far too well. Many of my friends earned a living supplying coke and crack to the addicted in the neighborhood. This only exacerbated the lack of attention paid to folks that were already mentally ill. As Jay-Z once said, we were screwed because we never had the tools. I chose not to partake, and some of that reason was because of my overbearing mother, my very cautious, loving, attentive mother. But I also didn't want to become one of these walking zombies high off of heroin or heroin, as they say outside of the hood. Talking sideways as if they were attempting to kiss their ears. What I didn't know, though, was that some of these people were brothers, were sisters, mothers, fathers who really needed help. And as I grew older, I realized how important it is for everyone to find coping mechanisms to deal with stress or depression. It's even more necessary for black and brown males who think isolation is the key. There's no literature that talks to us about male suffering and male misery. And then we grow up in a culture that does not practice reconciliation. 
no meaningful attempt to offer ways to resolve these feelings and find a common ground. We have to remind ourselves that it isn't that no one understands us. It's that we just need a damn psychiatrist. You see, the violence promulgates among ourselves, and then we become aggressive towards police officers who are violent towards us. It's a vicious cycle of violence, mostly male violence. I recall an experience with a police officer that arrested me one time in Miami. It didn't take much for me to react to his aggression. I had to do some work on myself, professional and also personal, to avoid that ever happening again, even if I am in the right. Going back to young boys, young boys should be allowed to be who they are and to find glory in their unique identity. I really believe that their value should not be determined by what they do or how they choose to express themselves. Now, as some of you may know, I'm Dominican, so Latino, and we can get passionate when we talk. So it's been brought to my attention that sometimes my tone can be uh, misinterpreted as hostile or aggressive. So as I was doing the work, I was more cautious of my tone. But then I was once described by a young woman I dated shortly thereafter as too sensitive because... I described her tone in the conversation as aggressive. Like so many women, she had been seduced by myths of a strong, domineering, aggressive man as a suitable mate. I tried to tell her that her tone only invited a punishing and unloving relationship. But... Touching on patriarchy, PSA, men, we need to learn how to die better. Live longer for ourselves first and foremost, and then for our families. Women tend to take care of themselves, and that is why their life expectancy is longer than men's. Men aren't typically trained to take good care of themselves. Men tend to ignore pain. Data says that men live longer when married, so we leave our mama's house and we have to go to our wives. If not, we are more likely to smoke and drink or forget to eat. We, this is ridiculous. We need to take this burden away from the women in our lives. It is ours to carry. Why do you think more men, so many black and brown men, have underlying conditions that make them more vulnerable to COVID. On average, a black man lives five years less than a white woman or a white man. We could also learn a lot from Asian men in that they tend to live 12 years longer than black males. Shit, maybe we do need to get into some Buddhism or Confucianism, Taoism. Let the mind reflect and heal and hopefully the body will follow. We have to understand that the pressures to bring home the bacon have also affected communities of color. In that, 
we are so married to this, I hate to say it, patriarchal system that we can't understand the complexities and the uniqueness of our own situations. For example, a male can also provide for his family by taking on household responsibilities, not just by making money. You too can rear children. You too can clean or tend to the garden. If we continue to be married to these fixed gender roles, more men, more relationships will become and continue to be frustrated. The reality is that women of color are stepping up. They're graduating college at higher rates, entering the workforce at higher rates. Sometimes to build a family, men have to deprive their ego. Real talk, the industrial complex knows that there aren't enough well-paying jobs. And when the economy changes, the family structure changes. And what happens when men of color can't provide? They tend to leave their relationships, sometimes abandoning their children, crushed by the failure in measuring up to the patriarchal standard of having to financially provide, this has to stop. We should all place family before money or gender roles. That may mean providing with what you get from unemployment only. But we must acknowledge that this battle is really between the mental and the physical. Real talk, there's a mass media propaganda tool for white supremacists and super capitalists that targets young black males in heavy-handed brainwashing to reinforce psychological patriarchy. There's a nationalist agenda that prevents envisioning alternative ways of thinking about being a man, of what it is to be a boy. It is an aggressive and a hostile one that trickles down from the top. So let me remind you, it takes two to conspire. An active participant of the conspiracy and a passive participant of the conspiracy. And I would argue that white supremacy, greed, and institutionalized racism is the active participant. And guess who is the passive participant? We are, the one in the mirror. The enemy within us conspires with the system in place, the system built to keep us down, a system that preserves power by maintaining control of our minds. And our minds control our bodies, so they control our bodies. The narrative doesn't have us dying like war heroes, combating evil with boots on the ground. The narrative has us dying, crying for our mamas. And this country subsidizes all of this undesirable behavior by defunding education and other programs that preserves the mental and physical health of so many, including your father, your brothers, your sons. So as I leave, I want to quote Ta-Nehisi Coates in where he said in his book, Between the World and Me, to yell black-on-black -black crime is to shoot a man and then shame him for bleeding. And let's not get it twisted. Though I agree with this statement, let's take it a bit further. If the system in place is putting the gun in your hand, 
Can you decide to not pull the trigger? Thank you for joining me. Palante.